Welcome to Plan VTV, the show about Vermont independence, where every citizen is an entrepreneur and every entrepreneur a citizen. I'm Dr. Rob Williams, the publisher of VermontIndependent.net, co-hosting today in our virtual studio as Brandon Zolino. Hi, Brandon. And all the way from the sunny climes of Western Japan, we are honored to have with us James Corbin. James, welcome. Thank you for having me on today. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really good to see you. Without further ado, I'm going to turn things over to Brandon. James, uh, you've recently written about an ongoing world-changing war in which you claim that virtually everyone on the planet is a combatant and where the battleground smolders between our very ears. You were speaking about a little-known concept called fifth-generational warfare that you state is characterized by full-spectrum dominance over every single aspect of our lives, our movements and our interactions, our transactions, even our innermost thoughts and feelings and desires. Can you speak to how, in their efforts to wage fifth-generational warfare, the global oligarchs, misleaders, and powers who shouldn't be have weaponized narrative framing that weakens our cognitive defenses and subjugates largely oblivious masses? What role do our cognitive biases play in this manipulation, and can we devise strategies and tactics to become cognizant of those biases and mitigate their effects? Quite the question. <laughs> well, I, maybe I can solve uh, cancer and war and uh, find world peace while we're at it. Well, <laughs> all right. Let me let me try to break this down because this truly is uh, such an important question on the most basic level of what it is the situation we find ourselves in. So I've attempted to articulate this a number of times over the years. Um, by, for example, calling this World War III. We are in World War III. It is already happening. It just looks nothing like warfare as we've known it before. And as you note, I just this past weekend released an editorial that has not received enough attention, I think, yet, but hopefully more people will catch on to it. It's called Your Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare. And in this, in this attempt to articulate this idea, I'm picking up on an idea that's been floating around for a few decades now in uh academic-y type of think tanky circles about generation warfare. Um, so this goes back to a 1989 Marine Corps Gazette article that was co-authored by William S. Lind and a couple of others, um, talking about the modern era of warfare, which they define as being post-Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, that they state, uh, sort of coalesce the idea that Nation states have a virtual monopoly on warfare in this modern age of warfare. Before that point, you had religious warfare and tribes and ideological warfare of different sorts. But from that point forward, it was the modern era of warfare, and it was nation state versus nation state over land and, and territorial sovereignty and what have you. And in that context, they came up with this idea. There were four generations of warfare that we've seen. So going from the first generation and first iteration of this um, being the old tactics of line and column and sort of everyone lining up and firing at each other. That quickly evolved into the second generation warfare of uh, indirect fire, mass movement of troops that was uh, in response to various military developments, um, rifled muskets, breech loaders, barbed wire, etc. You get to the third generation of warfare, which has non-linear movement like maneuver and infiltration and uh, it was developed in response to the uh, increase in battlefield firepower that was brought to bear in World War One, 
And then they stated, okay, so now we've arrived at fourth generation warfare, which is now no longer nation state versus nation state. Now it often involves uncertain actors, nation states versus guerrilla insurgencies. Uh, it's not necessarily military men with guns in their hands. And now it involves information operations and psychological operations and other sorts of uh, effects like that. And some people have picked up on that idea and run with it and said, well, okay, now we're in fifth generation warfare. And so I just picked up on that concept. Don't get hung up on the term. I am not an adherent to this as, as the, the defining category of existence. What I'm trying to paint is a picture of warfare that doesn't look like men in camo with guns in their hands pointing guns at people. That's not what this warfare is. This warfare is an attempt to control the citizenry of the planet Earth by each individual nation state against their own citizens primarily, um, which again does not fit into our framework of what warfare looks like because post Treaty of Westphalia, you have nation, nation state sovereignty. And so no other nation state can come in and dictate what a nation state can do within its own territory. But now nation states are more concerned about consolidating their control over their own citizenry. So what does that look like? What form does that take? And I identified several different areas that this warfare is happening on. The information warfare plane, the uh, neurological warfare plane, which is a new front that's opening up given the technological advances that have been made in recent years, biological warfare, not just what we've seen over the past couple of years, the, the specter of the four, uh, level four bio labs and whatever may be leaking out of them, et cetera, but also the idea of weaponization of pharmaceutical interventions to actually cause uh, uh, medical problems in the population or the genetically modified organisms that are being uh, essentially altering the genome of the biosphere in an open air experiment that they always say is controlled, but always, oops, it turns out this organism escaped and we have no control over it or, or things along those lines. And uh, we also have economic warfare, which I think everyone is probably feeling at this point as the inflationary pressures start to rise. But that's the price of freedom or something like that, according to Biden and others. So um, the, once we start to contextualize it in the right way and understand that we are being, we are essentially the targets of this warfare, and it isn't necessarily Russia that is targeting Americans. It It is to some extent the American government that is targeting Americans for control over primarily their mental space. So that if you can control a population to the point where they will do what you say, you don't really need the people with guns pointed at their head telling them what to do. You just you just implant it in their messaging. You just have people in certain positions of authority, like uh, like a Fauci or whoever who gets to dictate. Okay, now everyone will do this. Now everyone will do that, and people can be led along in a system of control that is more refined and complex than anything yet developed, and which is being aided by the technological advances that I alluded to earlier. For earlier, so that's that's the big overview of this subject and. I hope you can understand there's a many, 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 many pieces to this puzzle, but I think we need that bigger picture of what this, the, what the puzzle is forming so that we understand and contextualize those pieces as we put them in, in place. Having said that, that's a big mouthful. So if you want to follow up on with certain things. Yeah. And before we go any further, James, we, we did link to your fifth generation warfare article at vermontindependence.net. Now would be a good time to mention for folks who are not familiar with your work here in Vermont and beyond, how, how we can find you and this analysis, please. 
well, thank you for posting that. And I always do encourage people to take my work and post it anywhere they want. It's uh, That's perfectly uh, not only good, but it's encouraged. Um, but if they want uh, my work specifically, I am at CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. I know a lot of people used to know me from my YouTube channel, but that has since been deleted for thought crime. So now the, the way to go is directly through my website. Yeah, and we did link link back uh, to that in in uh, in our post. I was reminded reading your uh, fifth generation warfare uh, essay this morning, James, of a, a searing documentary on the Vietnam War from roughly fifty years ago called Hearts and Minds, Hearts and Minds, which was a riff on General William Westmoreland's famous line about the U.S. Army having to win over Vietnamese hearts and minds and uh, in, in one of the most famous scenes in documentary history, we we see Westmoreland uttering these words while the Agent Orange and Napalm is raining down on on Vietnamese families and children and and women, and it, it's a horrific kind of moment in a very troubling documentary film. And I, I'm guessing the film is still available here and there, but um, and yet fifty that was fifty years ago. I mean. You document in this in in this analysis just how much more sophisticated these um, uh, these weapons, uh, neuro weapons, biological weapons, uh, et cetera, have become. Yes, and may I just point out, uh, firstly, that I think that is what William S. Lind and others were responding to, is the idea that of the changeover it, from military that was geared towards fighting and winning battles to one that is geared towards fighting and winning hearts and minds. That's, I believe, what they were gesturing to with fourth generation warfare, that it's a it's a different type of military operation altogether. And uh, secondly, yes, the, uh, the advance in technology is extremely important because as the authors of that fourth generation warfare piece from 1989 pointed out, it was primarily technological advancements that that brought the evolution of different eras of warfare. And I think we can see that at work. Uh, World War I blew people's minds. Uh, even long-term military strategists and planners, people who had developed plans for their entire careers, suddenly saw them all dashed off the board in a matter of months because this warfare looked nothing like warfare had ever looked before. World War II, similarly, did not look anything like warfare before. Wars like in Vietnam or Iraq or other counterinsurgency operations look nothing like the warfare before. And when and if there is a hot World War III between nation uh, uh, world powers, it will look nothing like what went before. So people have to understand the technological differences um, in this warfare. And one of the, I think, simplest ways to get your head around that is to watch a presentation by Dr. James Giordano, who is associated with a number of groups and, and universities and what have you, but he uh, definitely has spent a lot of time in the neurological weapon sphere. And when you listen to him talk, I have the impression that there is at least a little bit of flimflam in there and that these weapons are not quite as developed as maybe the US military would like them to be, but it, it at least gives you a sense of what, of what they are working on and the potential power for these weapons to, if not literally control people like Manchurian candidate, ro candidate robots or something, at the very least to disrupt your cognitive processes long enough for a, a, an enemy to come in and do whatever they want to do to you. And in this case, again, enemy does not necessarily mean the Russian army or something. It could be our own forces. Again, depending on what way you're reading 
um, the, the way these battle lines are being drawn and in what context. Uh, as we just saw in Canada just a few short weeks ago, if you support the wrong political protest movement, you can and will be labeled as a national emergency threat, which then opens up the Pandora's box of literal um, military operations being waged against you, as the Canadian Armed Forces admitted to last year, saying that the pandemic presented a unique opportunity to uh, to refine their propaganda techniques on the Canadian citizens themselves. The military openly declared war on Can Canadians. I don't know if they, most Canadians noticed that, however. Yeah, and here in the United States, the Department of Homeland Security, just under a month ago, issuing a new directive claiming that any misinformation or disinformation or malinformation, they invented even yet an, yet another term, uh, particularly around two topics, the, the COVID-19 situation or uh, election integrity uh, would be met with the label of domestic terrorist, which you know has been in the works for some time. Um. So James, as you were speaking to before, um, there's the old adage that generals are always preparing for the previous war. So if the front of the war right now is in our minds, we're all the combatants, what are some things that we can do to defend ourselves? Uh, the first and I think most important level of all of this is understanding that we are at war and starting to try to understand who are uh, we are combatants, so who are we? Who are we up against, and for what what reason? If we cannot determine that, then we are completely lost in any war situation, standard, you know, old school military or this new type of fifth generation warfare. If you do not understand who the enemy is and where the battle lines are and what's being what war is being waged, then you're going to lose the war. So that is the first thing. Unfortunately, if my thesis is correct, and this is a war that is being waged even by nation states against their own citizenry and uh, in in collaboration with most of the major establishment media and other major corporations and uh, uh, things that are on board with this agenda. Uh, they, they The info space, as we have known it, uh, is obviously polluted with their misinformation, disinformation and malinformation. So. Uh, we have to understand that it, it it's extremely difficult to find unfiltered information about what is going on, as opposed to information that we are expected to see and simply internalize. So uh, a key part of all of this, if if the information war really is the frontline battle line of this fifth generation war, then information itself becomes an incredibly important tool and or weapon, a weapon of self-defense or a weapon of offense. Uh, it, it could be a weapon that could be used against us. It could be a weapon that we can use to hopefully wake up some of these other combatants. Hey, there's a war going on and we're involved in it. So that I think that's where we have to understand and, and contextualize what's happening. Having said that, then, of course, the question most people will ask is, well, who do I trust and how do I know what to trust? And this, I think, is an incredibly important point because I think it absolutely places the emphasis in the wrong place. I think we unfortunately tend to get drawn into the paradigm, which has persisted throughout our entire lifetimes of the old school thinking of the establishment media of, look, th these are the organizations, these they report the news, and then you get to decide what you think about the news. But of course, this is this is developed in the era of mass media and mass print and mass television uh, media in which a few corporations could essentially control 90% of what you're hearing and seeing on a daily basis so that 
the control doesn't necessarily happen at the individual level of this, this anchor is lying to you about what he knows or something. No, it's that the information is being funneled to, to the point where by the time it reaches the audience, you are receiving a tiny thin sliver of the information that's available that has been prepackaged so that you can come to whatever conclusion you want about that tiny sliver of information. It's not going to upset the broader agenda that's at work. So we have to start to get out of that mindset of I'm looking for the, the source, the person that I can trust, who's going to tell me the truth and start trying to triangulate information and seeing if it makes sense given the context, the context of what else we know and how else can we determine what is true and what isn't. And unfortunately, that involves work. <laughs> and no one wants to hear that there's going to they're going to have to work to become informed so that they can be at, at, at least winning participants in and combatants in this war that is happening around them, like it or not. Um, most people want to be able to turn off their mind and just absorb the news and then go on with their lives. Unfortunately, that isn't how it works in fifth generation warfare. And there's a reason why they call television uh, news a show or a program. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm teaching a course with a mutual colleague, Dr. Mark Crispin Miller. I know you know Mark, and uh, we're teaching a course called Critical Being in the Time of COVID. And I like what you just said. I, I, I think we're presented day in and day out with a very narrow band of acceptable choices. And I hear you suggesting that really what we have to do is like broaden to the maximum, right? Um, the, the The range of possibilities for how we think and feel and act uh, in the world. At least broaden as much as we can those, those possibilities, which does not mean to simply accept all information, but it does mean that we need to at least understand that the information we're receiving has been filtered and funneled down to such a small level, and we have to start casting our gaze and, and attention a bit wider. And of course, I think that that is organically what has been happening over the past couple of decades of the flowering of online information and programs like this one. How would I even be talking to you if it weren't for this wonderful technology making it possible for me to be sitting here in my, my room here in Japan? I'm talking to you doing this. That has been the, the, the incredible flowering of information that, that has happened. Unfortunately, that is exactly why we are now seeing the great crackdown happening on all of the big tech platforms. So, for example, the YouTube channel that I once had with over half a million subscribers has, of course, been nuked because they cannot allow the enemy to use their weapons inf information system against them in the info war. That, I mean, it's exactly what has happened. So, um, unfortunately, again, work, but people have to work to find out um, different ways of receiving information, because the easiest path will always be the one that is provided by the very people who are warring against you. Don't worry, you can just watch TV news. That's enough. Oh, you want something more? Okay, go online, go, go to YouTube, go to Facebook, go to Instagram. Those are the places you can get your news. But there are many, many, many other options. Unfortunately, people have to work to identify, discover, and start to um, change their habits around that. And that, I think, goes back to something that was developed in the early days of, I think, psychological operations. The person who literally wrote the book on propaganda, Edward Bernays, back in the 1920s, who identified the real ruling power of society are those who can manipulate our, our thoughts and our opinions and our habits. Those are the people who are really controlling society with whether we know it or not. And I think that's every bit as much true in 2022 as it was 100 years ago. Well said. 
and that that framing really limits our thought, be it in like the realm of science, um, where you reported uh, about um, Kuhn. You were talking about Kuhn uh, and uh, different paradigms that scientists mm -hmm. exist in various paradigms. Um, I know uh, Foucault talks about episteme, that we kind of exist in this um, framing that uh, characterizes all of our uh, preconceptions about what we believe and how we believe and how we interpret. Um, and the molding of, of that uh, paradigm or that episteme or you know whatever other word you want to use to characterize um, this box that we're that we're placed in. How do we? Do you have any like suggestions on like how to escape that or how to like remove yourself from that? Because I know there are some people, um, peers in the resistance movement here in Vermont, um, that they've fallen into that Q trap, and it doesn't seem like it seems like there's a, a dearth of information to support that. But yet the the bias, the the the, uh, the preconceptions that like this is the way, this is what, this is the truth. Um, everything will be revealed, um, and just have faith in the plan. And, um, and that's the, that's the model. That's the framework that they seem to consume information and parse it out and lay it out. Um, how would you approach, how, like, how do you approach that? How do you like, if you, and how do you know if you're in a trap like that, how do you recognize they're in that trap? Yeah. That, that might be the most difficult part, because once you can really understand that that trap exists and that you are caught in it, then then it's just a matter of are you motivated to get out of it? But understanding that that trap even exists, unfortunately, is the hard part. Again, like fifth generation warfare, understanding it is a war is, I think, the biggest mental hurdle. And once you do understand that and start to get, get a bearing of the terrain, then you can start to make judgments based on that. Um, so... Uh, I will just note parenthetically that it was, interestingly, it was my uh, my uh, video on Science Says, which in which I was uh, talking about paradigms and, and Kuhn and things along those lines. That was the third strike that got my YouTube channel banned. So <laughs> definitely don't want to talk about uh, philosophy of science. Ah. Um, I will say, I, I think there is no way to escape being within a paradigm. We all have some sort of paradigm within which we are operating, which guides our understanding of the information that we're receiving. And this goes back to a uh, Propaganda Watch video that I released, I think, a year and a half ago or something along those lines, on uh, same facts, opposite conclusions, in which I demonstrated that you could have literally the exact same set of data and you could come to two completely opposite conclusions about that data just based on the paradigm that you're operating in, the narrative which you are operating from. So in that case, for example, I was talking about lockdowns being correlated with more or less deaths or what have you. And no matter what the data says, you could, depending on your paradigm, you could interpret it to be in support of your paradigm. So people who are pro-lockdown, yes, it's lockdowns that saved us, but you had more deaths in lockdown areas. Well, that's because they locked down because there were so many more deaths. And if they didn't lock down, there would have been many, many more deaths. It's one of those things. You can't you can't disprove the negative. You can't run experiments on reality. So it, it, whatever the data says, it it's in support of what I believe. That is the most insidious part of this. How do you really break through from that position? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's a happy or easy answer to that because, again, as I say, there's no way to work in a, a mindset that isn't within some sort of framework. We all have a framework for how we see the world, but that framework can change. And 
I know that personally from my own experience back in 2006, when I started encountering information about 9-11 and these things that I was hearing online that seemed crazy until I started looking them up and realizing there was facts to back that up. And then that led me to another and then another thing and another thing until I finally managed to bust through the paradigm that I was operating in and start on a new paradigm. I am certainly not. I, I don't think that I have reached the final stage of awareness, and I know everything, I, I very much could and do, I think, over the years, continue to break through other paradigm-busting um, pieces of information. But it generally happens slowly in stages. And when enough data starts to accumulate that goes against the paradigm that you're working in, that you realize, okay, either I have to really change the shape of the narrative I'm working from, or I have to find a completely new narrative. Um, that's a long process. And there's no... Uh, everyone's looking for the, what's the one fact that I can give people that'll bust their <laughs> minds wide open? I don't think it works that way. Again, unfortunately, it keeps going back to this work. People have to put in the mental labor to question and uh, new information as it comes in, see how it does or does not relate to the paradigm. And if their paradigm cannot incorporate enough of that evidence, looking for ways of reshaping or rethinking that paradigm in entirely, once we get to that point, we get to something that has been underlined quite a bit in recent months by the, the establishment figures themselves, like the World Economic Forum, talking about the great narrative. Because I think the people who do really would like to have control over the globe or as much of it as they can understand, recognize that narrative is truly the baseline from which you can control billions of people. Um, it's not people with guns that are going to control billions of people. It is understanding how people's minds work and what narrative you can give them so that they can then be led along into something they would otherwise wouldn't. And on that note, I will just direct people to a Solutions Watch episode I had last year on writing a new narrative, where I stressed our, perhaps once we are awake and aware and are, okay, we're in this fifth generation war, we're the combatants, what are we going to do about it? The, the primary thing is to write that new narrative and present it in ways to people that they can understand and articulate the warfare that's happening around them. And this is the central claim, of course, of Yuval Noah Harari's uh, acclaimed book, Sapiens, that the reason why we humans are the most successful species on the planet is because we are capable of collaborating flexibly in large groups around shared fictions, he calls them, narratives, stories, if you will. And of course, uh, Harari for many years now has been wagging the Schwab, as I like to say, um, and, and really sort of providing the intellectual firepower for this, what you're calling fifth generation uh, war. And I, I think it's important. I, I know um, many people, I think, are becoming more aware of uh, kind of Harari's very intimate connections to the globalists, shall we say. But it's important, I think, to read his work and take it seriously in that sense, that stories are powerful. I, if I may, I, I wanted to get your take, James, on this word in formation. Um, we had a chance at Freedom Travel Alliance uh, a few weeks back to interview the Belgian um, psych, 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 psychologist, uh, Matthias Desmond, uh, who has articulated this theory of mass formation, which has been making the rounds and um, we're pleased to report that Chelsea Green uh, Press here in Vermont will be publishing the English language version of his new book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, uh, in the next um, several months, I believe. But what is your take on, on mass formation, given that 
we've been talking this entire conversation about information and, and to become more aware of information. Can you say something about that? Well, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm, I'm not a psychologist by trade or training. So uh, I will defer to Professor Desmond on this, the specifics of this, but I think we can all see in our day-to-day -day lives the effects that uh, information has in shaping people's perception of the world and even their own identity, which seems amazing when you, uh, if you were just as articulated in an abstract way like that, people would say, well, that doesn't make sense. But if you see it happening, you understand it. And we've all seen it over the past couple of years, the way people have been absolutely railroaded into an entire identity that is un at base really around supporting big pharma and medical interventions and medical authoritarianism and me medical martial law of various sorts, unquestioningly, um, which was bizarre to see as it took shape. But it was even more bizarre to see how that narrative essentially got cast aside and completely swapped for stand with Ukraine. Now I fly blue and yellow flags and this is my identity now. And there seems to be a correlation, I would say, between the people who made COVID and the COVID protocols and measures their identity and the people who now make Ukraine their identity. There is clearly a, a process that is at work that um, I don't know if the techniques are becoming more refined, whether it's some sort of combination of propaganda techniques, uh, as well as the biological warfare and neurological warfare we were talking about before. But it does seem that people are able to be diverted very, very quickly uh, in, into almost any course that is presented to them by establishment media at this point. I think that is that mass formation seems like the most plausible explanation for that phenomenon that I've seen. It is clearly at work and we've all seen it. So I guess the question then is, what do we do about it? And I think that's the that's the question for all the marbles. Yeah, it definitely seems like narrative has the ability to influence our values um, and you know, vice versa recursively. Does that make it, um, does, does that limit our ability to use like say first principles thinking as kind of a compass to work our way through sussing out like what's valid information and what's invalid information or what's misinformation? Um, if our values are so easily influenced by the narrative itself? You know, that is an intriguing question because I see what you're saying that recursively it works the other way as well. Our values influence our narratives, our narratives influence our values. And can, uh, can we write from first principles rather than write from information or from the world around us? I guess uh, that would be a hard question to solve experimentally. Um, I don't know how to do controlled experiments on that. Uh, I would say... I am skeptical of the idea that we can ever simply live from first principle without any input from the outside world. Um, I don't know what that sort of life would look like, but uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone living that sort of life. We all take information in from the outside world and use that to come to a better understanding. Um, I mean, it, it's the kind of thing, yes, it's very easy to say, thou shall not kill or whatever it is, but then there are the 18 trillion different particular circumstances in which one could find oneself in which, okay, well, but that guy's trying to kill my, my son. Am I going to kill him to get, stop him from killing my son? You know, like how many angels dance on the head of this pin? Um, there's always that sort of nexus between first principles and reality that gets muddy. Um, so I don't know if you can simply live from first principles, but um, I think you're right that 
first principles can and should probably guide our formation of narratives. And if our narratives are clearly not in accord with our principles, then there's something there's something wrong there and something we need to shape or change. Having said that, then I guess the the real starting point of this is determining what our first principles are. And I think that really is, again, the type of me- uh, mental critical thinking work that needs to be done as one of the ground layers of this information war. If we know who we are, what we believe, what we are fighting for, what we want, then we can create the world that it, around us that that reflects those views. But if we if we're just kind of going along with whatever is being presented to us without any clear articulation of what our principles are, what we stand for, what we are willing to to do or not do in what circumstances, if we can't draw those lines in the sand, again, we're lost. We're we're fighting a war without without even knowing where the battles battle lines are drawn. Yeah, that's that's really well said. I, I I've been struck by a phrase I heard recently, James. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about racism and institutional racism and systemic racism, et cetera. I heard someone use the phrase human racism to describe kind of this um, narrative war on our species. Like you see this everywhere. You see it in the language of kind of the social justice conversation, so-called. You see it in um, uh, the, the climate change conversation. Humans are a virus. Humans are a scourge. Humans are a cancer. And, you know, I teach a lot of young people in the colleges and universities, and I see it in their eyes. You know, it almost feels like there's this assault on the species. Um, and it's really, um, it's quite troubling, actually. And I've, I've worked with young people now for 30 years. I've raised two kids myself. And um, I, I really feel like that kind of human racism um, and it's such a provocative term, is really kind of sucking the, the hope and life energy uh, out of so many fellow humans that I just happen to observe. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that um, yourself. Uh, I mean, it just seems like it's part of the, the death cult uh, transhumanist mm-hmm. ideology to me. <laughs> it, that is such a good way of framing it that I'm definitely going to steal that from you. So thank you for that. Um, yes, because... Gen, I, in fact, when you first said the term, I thought you were going to go for speciesism, like, oh, we value humans other than over other animal life or something. But no, actually, yes, it's a form of racism against our own species, as in humans, icky, stupid, biological humans. They're gross and they're horrible and they're destructive and everything about them is bad. We must hate them. And that really is, it's a bizarre and strange thing to watch a species getting indoctrinated to hate itself. But that is, what I've felt for a very, very long time, and I have definitely picked up on that, certainly from the, the I think if we're talking about first principles and what is it we believe in, what are we fighting for? When we look at the people who are motivated um, by environmental concerns, I think, of course, there are environmental concerns. Humans do wreak damage on the, the global ecosystem. Absolutely. We should be concerned about that, but not to the point of hating humanity itself. And I think that's sort of an, an underlying motivation of some of the people that are trying to steer humanity towards, we must eliminate humans in order to solve the environmental problem. And uh, that feeds exactly into that death cult mentality. And there are many manifestations of that, including the transhumanist movement and other things that that grow out of that but i think there is that kind of death cult embedded in it it also it seems sociopathic and it seems 
like um, it seems like an objectification, like objectifying individuals um, as just objects to be cast aside or or done with what uh, the ruling class would please to do with them. Yeah, ultimately, I, I think that's ultimately what it's about. I think this is. I mean, there's the Thanos and the death drive and things that they, I think, know how to tap into those parts of human psyche. But it is, I think, being done in a manipulative way by the people who want to ultimately control the human species. What better way to do it than to implant a hatred of the human species in the people you want to control so that they will be more willing to be controlled? I think that's sort of the the base level of the scam. And I I, want to give a shout out to three of your excellent documentary films, James, many of which... um, the segments of which I've used in my classes over the years, your film on big oil, the sequel on big data, and then your most recent uh, film uh, in this trilogy I'm spinning uh, on, on uh, Bill Gates and and, uh, kind of the Gates crowd, which of course brings up the question of eugenics. And I think you see embedded in the eugenics movement going way back, not only the sense that some are more well-born than others to quote Mr. Huxley, uh, but also that, um, the species itself uh, is vile and and deserves uh, population reduction um, at, at at bare minimum. And and to bring it around um, to the book Manufacturing Consent, Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, I, I, I ran across um, something Edward Herman said about normalization. And I was thinking about your remarks a minute ago and and the COVIDtopian situation. Um, we've normalized over the past two years the social distancing of a social species. We've normalized the masking of our nose and mouths, our noses and mouths, which we depend on for respiration 20 to 25,000 times a day. We've normalized experimental injections into the species. I, I mean, it's really, it's really sort of horrifying when you step back and you kind of try and look at it objectively. And, and um, you know, Herman was talking about in normalization, he was talking about war atrocities, interestingly enough, back to Vietnam and hearts and minds. But I think, you know, if you apply his frame to the COVIDtopian situation, it's, uh, it's, it's horrific. There, there have been those who have analyzed um, the, um, the sort of manuals for psychological torture. If you want to torture someone, what do you do? And they they point out the similarities. So you isolate them, and you you tell them, you, you know, you you mask them or put them in some sort of muzzle. You do all of these steps, and hey, it lines up exactly with what we've been told for the past two years. I, again, I haven't explored the source material on that, but I think generally speaking, it's quite evident that what has happened over the past couple of years is primarily a political operation. But even more primarily, I suppose, a social operation that's been at play. But since the political order is structured on our social relations, now that we are being normalized into a world where social relations themselves are being demonized, and the ultimate form of political participation is now to not participate in public, that's such a a strange inversion that's taken place that, again, has, as you say, has been normalized over the past couple of years that, again, 99 people out of 100 wouldn't even recognize it on those terms. I know we just have a few minutes left, and I'm wondering if there's, before we close, and I I have, I'd like to, uh, and and you too, Brandon, if you have anything else to to weigh in on, Um, any other observations uh, about cognitive framing or narrative bias or the power of stories or at this strange (laughs) moment for the species, James? I suppose uh, to not make this a completely bleak conversation, I would want to stress what 
our role in this and what we can do positively in that sense. And that's why I would, again, bring it back to that Solutions Watch I, I did on writing a new narrative, which I think is hopefully the way out of what we are experiencing right now is one, to present this information in a narrative that um, encapsulates the the nature of what's happening, the gravity of what's happening, but also our role within it, which is to shape a new narrative. And that's why I try to continually stress in my work, ultimately, what the, the important thing is not the war itself or the we have to pick up arms and start shooting people. That's not how this warfare takes place. No, if they are using the war of the, the, the weapons of propaganda and influence and uh, selectively giving us information and writing narratives for us, why are we not then wielding that, that weapon for ourselves in a way to create a community of people who are aware of what's happening and then able to envision what they want to have happen? And then we can start to devise the plan to make that happen. And unfortunately, when I start talking about this, which is ultimately the creation of a type of parallel society, whereby we're not we're not participating in their systems of control we're starting to create our own systems uh, based on our own principles and what we want um inevitably the counter to that is but won't they just come after you do you think they'll just sit there while you do this well of course they will come after you that's that's warfare yes absolutely but until we start to build something up that at the very least has the kernels of an idea that people can see and grasp and you don't have to persuade them, oh, you know, please come over here and support me. No. Hey, look, we're living this way in a relatively free way. And you can live in, in that authoritarian, increasingly authoritarian system if you want. But I think the way to snap people out of this, if there is a way, is to show them the example of the world, the vision that you want to bring about, rather than simply, uh, what, let's fight against them and then we'll take over political power and we'll put our will in law and we'll start to enforce it with our armies. Yay. That, that is not the way to win this war. Um, so I, I want to put the stress back on that part of this, that we have to take it upon ourselves to formulate a narrative that has, has that vision that people can work towards because people need something to work towards rather than something simply to fight against. Yeah, I just, I think it's, it's challenging to figure out what you're working towards if you if you don't have that direct like how do you how do you know what to work towards like how do you know what what, what the goal is unless yeah. you are basing that off your values and then we get back to the whole yeah. Yeah. how do you know what's true we need a comp we need a moral compass here yeah no it's it's true there's no there's no simple I can't give you the you know two minute encapsulation of exactly how to live your life but um, I think. At least a general rule of thumb or a guide to at least start you down the process of thinking along those lines would be to say, okay, we know that what is being proposed right now is this increasing centralization of control in fewer and fewer, uh, the hands of fewer and fewer establishment oligarchs, essentially, and that there is this superclass identified as such by David Rothkopf, who no doubt thinks of himself as part of the superclass, who are these transnational actors who can cre create essentially global agendas. We can see it happening in all sorts of different spheres, the, the ESG, the, the goals that are now um, directing trillions of dollars in investable assets based on the the say-so of who? Who's deciding this criteria? Oh, okay, let's look at that. So we can see what is happening. And we know, at least I know, that isn't what I want. That isn't the world, the vision that I'm working towards. So at the very least, you can start by saying, okay, well, what's the negation of that? Increasing centralization of control in fewer and fewer hands. 
How about increasing decentralization and decentralization, de decentralizing those positions of power over which people can be ruled by the millions? How about if we can get down to something that's more based on actual human, voluntary human interaction? Hey, that sounds more like it's in line with what I want. So then we start to think, well, what does that look like in terms of shaping a community? And then, well, okay, we're in a community. How do we interact? How do we transact? What kind of systems are we going to set up? Then you can start to get into that. And as I always stress, I don't think there is one way. This is the way to organize human society and everyone will do it. I think there will be many, many people trying many, many different things. Some of them will work and flourish. Some of them won't. It's not even a question of, of let the best community win, because I think, what does a win mean? For you, it might mean something different than for me. I want to live in this way. I'm happy living in this way, even if I don't have as much monetary wealth or something. Uh, other people might put values on different things. It, it isn't a competition that there, there can only be one winner. I think there can be many different types of ways that we can live. But until we, again, realize that the power ultimately of the entire system rests on us, the average people, there are very, very few at the top who live on essentially the, the amassed resources and wealth that we create out of our own toil and labor uh, towards their vision, why don't we take that power back into our hands? Again, easier said than done. This isn't a Pollyanna vision. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to you know, all end up fine for all time. There is no utopia, I think, here. But at any rate, there is a better direction to be going in. I, I always begin my classes, James, with um, two observations with my students. One is that in a time of deep division, um, what unites all of us is our common, um, the common spark as a species. We are all members of Team Human, as I like to say, quoting Doug, Doug Rushkoff. Um, and secondly, we're, we're all united by the power of our breath. And, you know, breath is the most elemental thing that not just we as a species do, but that all living things do respirate in some way or another. And to, to really um, use the power of breathing, which humans figured out a long time ago, to optimize ourselves so that we can best support and help the ones we love and care for and build the kind of world that we wish to build, I think is um, something I wake up thinking about uh, every day. That sounds like a conspiracy to breathe together. Well, that's exactly right. And it, it is the greatest and most beautiful conspiracy of all. I'm, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> Can I just read um, from your, um, the end of your, your uh, fifth generation uh, warfare uh, essay, James, CorbettReport.com, uh, two T's. Yeah, for our listeners and viewers who may not know, CorbettReport.com and also VermontIndependent.net. You write uh, at the end of your essay, we must stop playing their game. We must stop fighting their war. We must stop ceding our power, our authority, our time, our attention, our energy, and our resources to engaging the enemy in their terms, in their battlefield. We must create our own parallel society on our own terms. Well said. Thank you, James. Thank you guys for your time. Thank you for spreading the information about this. As I say, if this does boil down to some form of information war, then what we're doing here is extremely important. And I know you recognize that. I hope your listeners do as well and will support you in your endeavors. Thanks, James. Thanks for your work. Be well, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Plan VTV, the show about Vermont independence. Our very special guest, 
uh, tonight. James Corbett, all the way from the sunny climes of Western Japan. Find his work at Corbett Re CorbettReport.com. Brandon Zelino, Dr. Rob Williams, thank you so much for watching, for listening, and remember, V for Vermont.